listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today I'd like to talk about the true prophet who did absolutely nothing. I'd like to talk about the true prophet who did absolutely nothing, and we're going to do that courtesy of the Word of God, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. Would you open in your Bible, please, with me to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him, Jesus, away to their council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Chapter 23, verse 1, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowns, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. Pay attention, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Jesus' reputation had preceded him, gone ahead of him, and Herod is now hoping to see a miraculous sign and wonder himself with his own eyes at the hands of Jesus. Verse 9, so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing or shiny clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. Important to see this convergence of all of the Jewish people. And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together. Now, this is interesting. The word that's used here in the original language, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. This is what's translated into the English. It comes across this way. But they all cried out together. This is a convergence of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the people. 
Things have now been catalyzed where the people are now unified in a way they had never before been unified. They are now rallying together as one against Jesus. That's what's coming across here. But they all cried out together. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm referring to. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Now, this is the only time in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Barabbas is mentioned in the Gospels and not in any other historical account that at least we're aware of. And he becomes significant in what's happening here in the life of Jesus. Otherwise, he's not significant as a historical figure. So the uprising that he was part of was not noteworthy. It wasn't something that was noteworthy to make it in the annals of history in terms of what was happening in Rome or in Jerusalem apart from the gospel account. So we have an insignificant man involved in historically in the larger scheme of things, an insignificant uprising and involved in murder against Jesus who was innocent as we see clearly proclaimed again and again in the gospel accounts. So in verse 20, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. And here it comes in verse 21. They finally come out and they say it. They demand that Jesus be crucified. They're demanding the death penalty. They kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, it's the idea of completeness. Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. Now, again, in the original language, if you were to read verse 23, and you were familiar with the, the Greek of the New Testament, Luke does something that's kind of startling in the Greek, uh, so that you don't get confused about this. There's no punctuation in the original language. There's no commas. There are no periods. There are no sentences. So for us today, we would look at that kind of Greek and a Greek manuscript, and we would maybe scratch our heads until we became familiar with the Greek language enough. We would scratch our heads and we would say, well, where do I put in a period? When does the sentence end? When does the new paragraph begin? But if you were living in the first century, the way Koine Greek, the Greek language was written, it wouldn't be as much of a difficulty for you. You understand the nuances and the inflections and you know where a sentence or a thought ends and where a sentence or a thought begins and when there's a pause. Well, here in the original language, what Luke does, it's, it's almost as if he was haunted by the voices, the way the sentence structure ends. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And those voices, and those voices. So I'm not sure that we really have a clear picture if we just read this section casually. You need to really meditate on the Word of God. You really need to marinate yourself in the Word of God and let the Word of God get into you so that the life of Christ permeates out of you. What's happening here is they are vehemently accusing Jesus, the leaders of the Jewish people. They are vehemently accusing him. And the crowd and the chief priests and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all of the Sanhedrin with the crowd, they're in cahoots together. They're shouting out, crucify, crucify. This is what's happening to the prophet of prophets, to Jesus of Nazareth, God's anointed one. This is what's taking place. 
And so Luke helps his readers understand what now you're beginning to understand those voices, those haunting voices that eventually led Pilate, a leader of leaders, to give in to peer pressure. And it's a good warning for you and for me that with the passage of time, the voices around us can prevail and cause us to make decisions, cause us to do things that we would otherwise not do. Pilate is absolutely convinced about the innocence of Jesus. Three times he makes his case here in Luke's gospel alone. If we read the other gospel accounts, Pilate goes so far as to wash his hands a symbolic gesture that I will not have this man's blood on me. And the people are crying out passionately. They want Jesus put to death. Crucify, crucify. Those voices seem to have haunted Luke. And maybe today it would be good for us to be haunted by them as well. To understand exactly what is taking place here with this innocent man condemned to death. Jesus. Verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and those voices. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, this is incredibly striking if you've been paying attention to the life of Jesus in our series, but even more importantly, if you're paying attention to the life of Jesus in your own life, in your own Bible reading, if you just even have a passing understanding, a passing knowledge of the Gospels, it becomes very clear that Jesus speaks the very words of God. Jesus acts as the very hand of Almighty God. So here it's absolutely puzzling that we have the prophet, the true prophet, doing absolutely nothing by comparison. Here's his opportunity to speak up for himself, to say something which is what a prophet does. What is a prophet if he is not somebody, she is not somebody who speaks the very words of God. That's what it means to be a prophet. A prophet is somebody who speaks the very words of God, the very oracles of God. And Jesus did that with a 100% track record. A prophet, by definition, is somebody who acts as the very hand of God, the very extension of God. That is literally the definition of a prophet. When we see in the Old Testament a prophet showing up, a true prophet from God, they speak the word of God, they act on behalf of God. And so what is it that we're seeing here with this true prophet, Jesus, this true prophet who's doing absolutely nothing when he could do anything he wanted to? Even a casual reading of the scriptures, you come to the conclusion. Even with a casual reading of the scriptures, you come to the conclusion that Jesus spoke the word of God, that Jesus performed miraculous signs and wonders. This is why Herod was excited to see Jesus. Now he was going to get to see for himself, doubting Thomas that he was. He was going to get to see for himself, covetous, jealous leader that he was. He was going to see for himself 
what he had heard reported that Jesus was a worker of miracles. But here, when Jesus had every opportunity repeatedly before the Sanhedrin and then before Pilate and even before Herod, we don't see any miraculous sign or wonder. We don't see any mesmerizing comment. We see tremendous confidence in who he is and what his mission is to simply continue to take that softball and lob it back to them. You're the one who says that. You're the one who says that. It's as you say, giving the Sanhedrin and giving Pilate, giving the ones who would administer the death penalty to him every opportunity to give testimony out of their own mouths about the identity of the one who was standing right before them. Pick any miracle of Jesus and the compilation of all the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that you want. I mean, for three years, he taught. For three years, he performed miracles, miraculous signs and wonders, the first one being the changing of the water into wine at the wedding. The healing of the crippled beggar, the crippled man who was let through the roof and let down right in the midst of Jesus because the crowd was so big he couldn't make his way. They couldn't take him on that mat into the very presence of Jesus. So they climbed up onto that roof and they let that man down through what would have otherwise been a very dangerous endeavor to get right in front of Jesus. And Jesus, moved with compassion, says, your sins are forgiven. (gasps) Who are you? to pronounce someone's sins forgiven. And not only that, to show you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Which miracle would you like? The walking on the water? The feeding of the 5,000? The casting out of demon after demon after demon? The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead? Which one of those miracles that demonstrated continually, all of those miracles together, demonstrated continually and conclusively, continually and conclusively, that Jesus was the true prophet speaking the word of God? He was the mouthpiece of Almighty God and administering the will of God. He was the hand of Almighty God. But here, in Luke 22 and Luke 23, he is doing absolutely nothing compared to what he was capable of doing. Even as recently as when they came to get him. They thought they were coming to get him. Actually, he was simply making himself available to them. When they came to get him and Peter lops off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, Jesus touches him, touches his ear, and the man is healed. We see Jesus repeatedly mesmerizing the leaders of the nation of Israel, recognize where the people were recognizing, surely this is the prophet, surely Jesus had a following. This is what led them on what we call Palm Sunday to lay down palms and to shout out, save now. That's what Hosanna means. Hosanna in the highest, save now. That's what it meant. This is what led them to do that just a week earlier. 
Jesus saying things. There are things rolling off of Jesus' lips, coming out of Jesus' mouth that mesmerized the people and got him quite an attraction, quite a crowd, the huge sizes of the crowds, and incited the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the leaders of the nation of Israel so that it's all converged, it's all come to this climax where the true prophet is doing absolutely nothing when he could do anything he wanted, say anything he wanted to say. If he wanted to backpedal, here's an opportunity to backpedal. If he wanted to set the record straight, if it was crooked and it wasn't, here's an opportunity to set the record straight. And we must take note of how peculiar it is at first glance or maybe even a second glance to see such a true prophet doing absolutely nothing. We must ask the question, why? Why is it that Jesus, who performed so many miraculous signs and wonders as a prophet of God at will, why is it that Jesus, who spoke the very word of God, Clearly, definitively, decisively, convincingly, who spoke as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law, the word of God says. Why is it that at this key time, this crucial time, the true prophet was doing absolutely nothing? Well, if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy chapter 18, let's start with Deuteronomy chapter 13. We begin to get an understanding about what was happening here with the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. They are calling for the death penalty. That's what they're doing. They're calling for the death penalty of Jesus. And we'll see this very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 13. They did not have the capability because they were under Roman rule they were being oppressed, unlike in Solomon's day where that theocracy was firing on all eight cylinders. The theocracy, the rule and reign of God through and in his people with Solomon acting as the representative of the Lord himself in a taste, a foreshadowing of the kingdom that is to come when we read the book of Revelation, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, and even beyond that, in the new heavens and the new earth, you can read that on your own time. I hope you do. Highly recommend it. Revelation chapter 21, the theocracy on earth, a theocracy where God is ruling and reigning with his people in harmony, no peace, no war, no difficulty, no tears, no hardship, the rule and reign of God. There is a theocracy coming on earth. It's not here now. It's not here now. Don't you know it? Amen. It's not here now. And so they're calling for the death penalty, and they're asking for the Romans. They are appealing to the selfish motives of the Romans to get them to do their dirty work, what they could not do for themselves. Now, before we even get to Deuteronomy chapter 13, say, when they say crucify him, crucify him, this would be like adding blood into shark-infested waters. Sharks have an unbelievable capability to detect even the smallest particle of blood in the ocean, as vast as it is, and from great distances away, a shark can sense the blood in the water and hightail it right over to where that floundering victim is. And once you have one shark, 
you have two sharks and three sharks and whoever's in that water is in big trouble. What we see the Jewish leaders doing, the leaders of this Sanhedrin with the crowd operating as one, crying out as one, crucify, crucify him. It's like adding blood into that shark-infested water because they're speaking the language of the Romans who loved to ridicule anyone who dared ridicule them. Earlier, they had tried to get Pilate to take the bait. He's causing an insurrection in the city, and Pilate doesn't take the bait. And now they are inciting the Romans to do what they do best. These soldiers with PhDs in crucifixion, these soldiers with degree upon degree of knowing how to inflict punishment and harm and agony upon a crucified victim who would perhaps have their hands tied above their head to a pole, sometimes with a peg coming out of that pole so that they could kind of sit on it. Sometimes the Romans would crucify somebody if they were on their road traveling somewhere and they wanted to make their presence known, they'd crucify somebody at the roadside, nail them to a tree, hang them to a tree, forbid anybody from taking them down. Sometimes they would put somebody on a cross, as we know is the case with Jesus of Nazareth. They would strip their victim absolutely naked, making a mockery of them, nail that person to the cross, as was the case for Jesus. And in many instances, whether it was on the pole or whether it was on the tree or whether it was on the cross, that victim would die of asphyxiation, exhaustion, suffocate, in some instances bleed to death. And then the Romans, adding insult to injury, would let that victim, in many instances, hang on that cross, not just for a few hours, but days after they had died. Sometimes, and oftentimes, oftentimes they would let that victim stay on that cross until there was no more of that victim on that cross or on that tree or on that pole. They would let birds come down and pick out the eyes and pick out the flesh so that it was very clear throughout the Roman world, you don't mess with the Romans because we know how to, how to deal with you. We know how to make a mockery of anybody who chooses to make a mockery of us. And what we see the Jewish leaders doing is adding some blood into shark-infested waters, speaking the language of the Romans getting them to do the dirty work that they would not have done if they weren't complicit to it. The Sanhedrin, acting on behalf of the Jewish nation, is officially rejecting Jesus and they want the death penalty because they have concluded erroneously, they have concluded that he is a false prophet. And the penalty for a false prophet is found in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. Look with me. They could not perform that death penalty themselves, so they're trying to speak the language of the Romans. So they're coming to the Romans and they're getting them to do their dirty work because they are now an oppressed people. Here we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, a miraculous sign or wonder, all right? That's what this is referring to. And the sign or wonder 
that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, here's the rabbit trail, which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It always comes down to love. And the Old Testament admonition is still pertinent and applicable today. Just because someone does a quote-unquote miraculous sign or wonder, something that looks supernatural, does not in and of itself authenticate that they are sent from God. In fact, many people have been led astray by people who have performed legitimate supernatural signs and wonders who were not sent from God. So you have to understand that the enemy is perfectly happy to give you 99% truth to get you to go down the rabbit trail of the 1% of truth that will absolutely shipwreck your life. Absolutely shipwreck your life. And if you don't believe me, pull me aside sometime and ask me about the witch that I accidentally, unknowingly invited to my church one time. Because she spoke the language and she talked the talk and she looked really smooth and cunning. But she was a witch nonetheless. And I am telling you as someone who has learned firsthand in my own life about the tremendous damage that can be done if you follow somebody only because they have miraculous signs and wonders, only because they, they speak in an eloquent, powerful, mesmerizing way, that should not in any way, shape, or form cause you to follow after them if they end up leading you to a false god or a false manifestation of the living and true God, or they lead you away from anything other than loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, and all of your soul. Verse 3. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him or respect him. That's what the word means. And keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. You know, you can hear the voice of God as often as you want it. Anytime you want it, courtesy of the word of God. One of the greatest tragedies, and I don't mean great as in good, I mean great as in terrible, that is going on today is people want to hear from God apart from the Word of God. People are not even reading the Bible. And so they go to other people, they go to other places to quote-unquote hear from God and have an experience from God. And as we'll see in just a moment, if that person does not have a 100% track record of hearing from God, you better not be going after that person to hear from God because you are jeopardizing yourself. You are putting yourself in harm's way when you don't have to put yourself in harm's way any day of the week if you will simply be in the word of God. You can have a personal word from God anytime you want, courtesy of the Bible. 
There's no gray about it. It's black and white. The word of God, the Bible, open it up. It's good that you want to hear from God. It's good that I want to hear from God. That's what we're supposed to be about when it comes to church, to hear from God. The thing that we don't seem to understand is that we can hear from God any time we want, every time we want, courtesy of this book of books that's been given to us, the very voice of God, the Bible. What he says in verse 5, Deuteronomy 13, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Let's back up to verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commands and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. You know, oftentimes rebellion against God is very subtle. When it begins to be about you, that's rebellion against God. When you begin to be the only person that God can speak through or speak to, that's rebellion against God. The devil knows that if he popped out of your closet this evening at 11 o'clock as you were tucking yourself into bed and said, hey, I've got a terrible and dastardly plan for your life. I hate you, and I've got a terrible and dastardly plan for your life. You would say, sweet Jesus, literally, hopefully, help me and rescue me. So the devil's more cunning than that. So what he'll do is get you to be full of yourself and believe falsehoods about yourself and believe falsehoods about other people and believe that, well, that person has real spirituality. I'll never attain to that level of spirituality when actually it's not about you being compared to somebody else. It's about you opening up your Bible, putting it into action and surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your mindset. If your brother, listen to the unapologetic terms here. Listen to the way there are no excuses. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, your, your closest goomba, entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods are the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. There is to be no compromise when the nature and the character and the reputation of God is at stake. You are not to show any partiality. Now, if you're paying attention to the news today, let's segue here to what's happening today, all right? Let's have a heart-to-heart -heart talk here for a moment. Can we do that? If you're paying attention to the news today, there is a group of people who say that God has commanded them to cut off the heads of infidels and that they believe that because of the caliphate, they are doing the will of God that God has commanded them. And there are progressive Christians 
I don't know why we use that word progressive when there's nothing forward moving about it at all. There are progressive Christians who would look at a passage like Deuteronomy 13 and they'd look at what's happening today and they'd say, well, there's a lot of similarity between what's commanded in the Bible and what we see the radical Islamists doing. Couldn't you make a case that this is apples for apples? No, this is apples for hand grenades. There is no comparison because this is, the, this is during the establishment of God's theocracy on earth in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12 that God was raising up a nation through Abram who became Abraham. This is the establishment unfolding of God's theocracy on earth through the nation of Israel where while God was establishing the nation of Israel, there was a high standard and we do not have that theocracy on earth at this time anymore. There is no theocracy on earth at this particular time where God is ruling and reigning in the same way that that was unfolding in Deuteronomy. And so it's important to understand that this is not a one-for-one. That was a limited time for a limited kingdom for a limited group of people. God's people, the Jewish people in the theocracy on earth that was looking forward to and pointing to the coming theocracy on earth, first through the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth as a descendant from the throne of David prophesied in Scripture, the Davidic covenant. And then again in Revelation chapter 21 where we see the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down and God himself ruling and reigning on the earth. That, my friends, is a theocracy. And so for a limited time, for a limited people, to a limited area in a limited portion of history, this commandment was given to protect and preserve the purity of Almighty God, Yahweh, the living and true God, the God of the Jewish people. And so they had to make sure that nobody came in and perverted or polluted the plan and the purpose of God through a false prophet or a false prophecy. And they were to purge the evil from among them because what was at stake was the very theocracy of God and the very fulfillment of God's plan spoken of through Abram, who became Abraham, who offered up his son. And if we follow the story, follow the Bible all the way down, it leads to Jesus as the promised one from the line of Abraham through whom the whole world will be blessed. Jesus. And so look with me now at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because Deuteronomy chapter 18 helps us understand that there was coming a prophet and now in hindsight, there did come a prophet. A prophet of prophets, the truest of all prophets, the ultimate prophet was promised here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and that person, that prophet was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See, somebody from the Jewish people. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they have spoken. In other words, the people 
do not want to be totally overwhelmed with the thought of meeting face-to-face with God. So God said, you're right, it's overwhelming. I'm going to send a prophet from among your own people. We know that his name is Jesus. Verse 18, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, ministry of a prophet, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of them. In other words, nobody gets off if they don't want to listen to the prophet of prophets. There is no one who will be excused if they reject God's prophet. That's what it means. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so the, the, the acid test or the litmus test of whether or not somebody is truly a prophet sent by God is a 100% track record. So the next time somebody comes up and says, I've got a word from the Lord for you. I have people emailing me all the time. God told me to tell you this. Now, I'm not saying that God cannot do that. And the New Testament says, do not despise prophecies, but we are also to test everything, as 1 John says. There's a difference between somebody who is setting themselves up as a prophet as conduit, as the messenger of God versus God being able to speak within the context of the body of Christ, a church through the leaders of the church. And if the leaders of the church are not abreast of alleged words that are supposed to be coming from the mouth of God, then one of two things is happening. Either somebody's going behind the back of the leaders, which is misleading and rebellious, or the leaders of the church are not paying attention to the flock and belittling the seriousness of what it means when somebody says, God told me to tell you this, the next words out of their mouth better be literally from the mouth of God. Because we can't have it both ways. There are a whole lot of people that want it both ways. They want to be a prophet. They want to speak prophetically on behalf of God, but they don't want to be held to the test of the prophet and the consequences of a false prophet, which is a 100% accuracy record, or you face the certainty of being put to death. And today, we kind of, we want a little bit of this, and we want a little bit of that. We want all the privileges of speaking on behalf of Almighty God and all the accolades that come with that and all the spiritual arrogance that can come as a result. And we don't want any of the accountability of what's spoken of in the commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. If you're going to say, God said this, you better know that you know 
that you know that God said it. And before you start adjusting your life to what somebody says, God told me that this is true, you better know that you know that you know that it's from Almighty God because there have been many people whose lives have been deeply and darkly impacted by running after something or somebody when they should have been running after the living and true God and seeking him and surrendering him. So anytime anybody tells me I got a word from the Lord for you, I say, you know what? I'll submit that to the Lord. I don't treat it contemptuously, but I say, you know what? I'll submit that to the Lord and you would do well to do the same thing. And by the way, if I'm walking in surrender to the Lord and I'm reading the word of the Lord where I'm hearing the voice of God, then if what you're saying is really of the Lord, I know that my God doesn't dangle carrots in front of me. I know that with the passing of time, if I'm faithful to God, if I'm surrendered to God, if I'm reading the word of God, sooner or later, that word will be confirmed one way or the other. Be very careful that in your quest to hear from God, you don't want to hear from God through other vehicles and other means at the exclusion of the obvious means, which should always be before you. The word of God and a surrendered life submitted to the God of his word. If you're not doing that, and if that's not the pursuit of your life, you are on dangerous ground. You are walking on thin ice. You can be led astray. So what's happening here in Luke 22, in Luke 23, is that the Sanhedrin is accusing Jesus of being a false prophet and they want him put to death. Isn't that ironic that the truest of all prophets is now being falsely accused under the pretenses of being a false prophet and they want the Romans to be their henchmen to do the deed? This is exactly what's happening. This is exactly what they're trying to do to put Jesus aside. And if we read the accounts otherwise, we know that Pilate perceived, if you read Mark's gospel, it says that Pilate perceived that they were jealous. That was the real reason. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, why is it and how is it that the true prophet does absolutely nothing when he's standing before Pilate, when he's standing before the Sanhedrin, Jesus could have said anything he wanted to say. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do to authenticate his identity, even though he had been doing it repeatedly for three years before their very eyes in the presence of their company. They could have called their witnesses anytime they wanted to. Actually, it was a three-year-long trial of Jesus. Why is it that Jesus is absolutely silent? Well, if we look at Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, we begin to get some insight. Acts 2, 22. This is the famous sermon, the famous message by Peter. When he's done preaching it on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people surrender their lives to Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, their Lord, the anointed one spoken of in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. See, 
the miraculous signs and wonders about Jesus that Jesus performed were there to give testimony to the Jewish people, how would they recognize whether or not the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the one that's prophesied about, predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when would they know, how would they know that he had actually arrived on the seed through the miraculous signs and wonders? Everything that Jesus talked about that he said would be fulfilled in his day was fulfilled. He didn't have a 99.9% track record. He had a 100% track record. Jesus didn't try to heal some people and come up successful some of the time. Every single time Jesus wanted to heal somebody, that person was healed. Not partially, and even in the instances where it seems to be progressive, it was for the purpose of leading the people to the feet of Jesus. For example, when Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest, the purpose was so that the priest would investigate the healing and the source of the healing and be led to the feet of Jesus, who was their savior. That's why Jesus had that person, go show yourself to the priest, because only the priest could declare that person clean. And in order for the priest to declare that person clean, they would have had to investigate the healing and the source of the healing, and they would have been led back to the feet of Jesus and been able to recognize that he, in fact, is the promised one in the Scriptures. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Nobody could argue with that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We've talked about the Romans being the thugs at the pleasure of the Jewish leaders. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he quotes Psalm 16. I wonder if Peter knew that day that he'd be quoting Psalm 16. I wonder if you know what's going to happen this week at work as you're spending time with God in his word, how God's going to bring those scriptures to remembrance at the right time to speak the word of God, which is irrefutable and undeniable to a neighbor or a coworker or a family member. There's definitely something to be said about living life out of the overflow of a deep reservoir built in the word of God. And so he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, Psalm 16 was not about David's life. It was about the one who would come from the line of David, Jesus. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ or the anointed one, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
And so when we see Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin and answering the way he did, when we see Jesus standing before Pilate and answering the way he did, when we see Jesus standing before Herod and not answering, even though he was prompted and probed and provoked, we understand that this is the prophet of prophets, the true prophet who did absolutely nothing when he could have done absolutely anything. We understand the reason why Jesus did it is right here in Acts 2. We read it, but now I want to zero in on it. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified at the hands of evil men. When Jesus is there in his day in court, standing before those who, humanly speaking, had the power to condemn him or set him free, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that Jesus didn't say a word? Why is it that Jesus didn't perform a convincing act when he certainly could have done it? The reason is right there, sitting in your seat. The reason is there when we look up to the heavens and we understand that Jesus was obedient to his father for the glory of his father, even to the point of death. We understand that Jesus spared no expense, including his own life, to be obedient with absolute surrender to his father. If it was possible for Jesus to bite his lip, he certainly seemed to have been doing it there when he was standing before Pilate when he was standing before Herod, when he was standing before the Sanhedrin, boy, if it was you or me, how I would have loved to say, okay, roll up my cloak. I'll show you. Forget what you saw over the past three years. Now I'm going to do the encore performance. And yet the true prophet did absolutely nothing when he could have done absolutely anything Anything at his disposal, spoken a word, performed a miraculous sign and wonder because you're important to him, because his father's will was important to him, because sin is a dark, dastardly, devilish thing that if it was not dealt with, you and I would spend an eternity separated from God. Jesus understood the seriousness of sin so much so that he endured ridicule when he should have been praised. He should have been lifted up. He should have been exalted and he should have been exonerated. And yet the true prophet did absolutely nothing because he was concerned about the will of his father and concerned about you. Can you imagine that? He's concerned about you being brought into a right relationship with him through the sacrificial death that he was on his way getting ready to deliver, not against his will. Because Jesus had all the power that he wanted, the power of God himself to free himself if he wanted, but he didn't want to be free. He wanted you to be free. And that is exactly why the true prophet did absolutely nothing except obey his father at this key time. And it's that obedience that led to your salvation and mine if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. 
Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm-hmm.